I'm not pulling out of the driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work, coronavirus edition. So I'm using uh, my home time to uh, do interviews because that's hard to do in the car. So today I have Ian Duke and we're going to talk about Innistrad Midnight Hunt. Hey, Ian. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I can't believe in nine years I haven't been on this podcast with you yet. I know, I know. I've been, especially now I've been doing interviews every week. So uh, I'm trying to get as many magic designers on my podcast as I can. So, uh, okay. So um, let's talk about some Midnight Hunt. So I've talked a bit about my end, you know, like the vision design part of it. So I want to focus a little bit more on the set design part of it. So the set is, well, what's your earliest memory of the set? I mean, I know, let's talk a little bit about the team and how it's structured. And then I want to talk about sort of set design, getting the set and where it went from there. Yeah, so one important thing to mention is that I actually co-led the set with Eric Lauer. So kind of the flow of things was um, Ethan Fleischer led the vision design team and then handed that off to Eric Lauer, who worked on the set for some number of months. And then Eric then handed the set off to me. So my involvement with the set started probably a couple months into the set design team when Eric was leading that portion of it. And I came onto the team as a member so I could kind of spin up and learn the file and kind of get an appreciation for Eric's, you know, vision forward for the set and then once i kind of got up to speed he eventually handed off to me and i took over for the final portion uh final several months of um the set design lead okay so i want to talk about various parts about the set and we'll talk about sort of where they were and what you did with them so let's start with day and night day bound night bound sorry (laughs) yeah so day bound night bound was sort of the big mechanic um that that ethan handed off from vision and we knew it was where we were kind of spending a lot of our, I don't know, complexity points equity for the set, that that was going to be a big focus um, and something that we really wanted to blow out and make a big part of the gameplay of the set. Um, and it was it was more or less there all along as far as my involvement on the set. Um, Eric had done some experimentation with it. We tried a couple different versions of how it would work. Um, but eventually we settled on the coolest thing about day and night is that um, compared to the original Innistrad version of day and night, that we would have this persistent tracker that stays in the game for the entire time and that everything would, you know, transform from day form or to night form as a unified thing instead of having, you know, some werewolves that were in their human form and some werewolves that were in their werewolf form, they would all kind of transform in unison and there would be this global tracker that presided over the game. Um, so that was the kind of thing that we tried to preserve uh, the whole way through, but we did make some tweaks and experiment with a bunch of different versions of things. One of the changes that I made um, to how day and night work is that in the original Innistrad, you would be caring about um, both players' actions on a given turn. So if it's my turn and I want to transform my werewolves, I could try to pass the turn to you without playing any spells. But if you had an instant to cast at, during my end step, for example, that would stop it from transforming to night. And we kind of, after testing a lot of different things, we kind of viewed that as maybe um, a little bit of a bug with the original day-night system. And so one of the fixes that I introduced is that you're only caring about what the active player is doing on their own turn, which fixed that problem of, hey, I want to transfer my werewolves, and then you, you know, kind of screwed me over by casting an instant in my end step. But it also fixed the problem of making it just generally easier to track, which is something that we were concerned about all along the way. Um. How did you, so the, the one other difference, I think, from the original werewolves is the idea that werewolves come on their night side if it's night. That's right. And that's one of the really cool things about the day-night tracker being persistent is that even if, um, you know, a Wrath of God type effect sweeps the board away, 
um, if a new if it's still night and a new werewolf comes down, that werewolf will immediately be in its night form, in its werewolf form. And that opened up some additional design space where we could do things like ETBs on the or enter the battlefield triggers on the werewolf side of the card. Or I believe there's even a um, werewolf uh, form card that has haste on it because this is the first time they can actually enter in their werewolf form. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, before we move on, to, we have plenty of mechanics to talk about. Any other quirky things about Daybound, Nightbound? Yeah, I mean, one of the other things to mention is that one of the themes in this set um, is that, uh, at least for limited themes, certain cards and color pairs care about it flipping back and forth between between day and night, and that's something that we experimented with a lot, um, just in terms of really unique and interesting gameplay, where you want to, you know... Take, take a turn off uh, and let it become night, and then maybe next turn you cast two spells. So there's really interesting sequencing puzzles and gameplay of like saving up cards um, so that you can transform it back to day later on. So we really had a lot of fun um, with those cards throughout the process. I'll also mention we, we did experiment with having a deck that wanted it to be day all the time to kind of counterbalance that the werewolves want it to be night. But we found that that created too much of a polarizing matchup where the deck that really wanted it to be day kept making it day, and then the werewolves never got to transform. So the deck that the day deck would always beat the werewolves deck, and that's something we identified early on and moved away from in the process. Okay, so next I'm gonna talk about what what I, I like. I, I'm a big fan of Daybound Nightbound, uh, but my, I'm gonna talk about my favorite mechanic in the set, which is Decayed. Um, and this has an interesting history. Uh, because uh, Crimson Vow made the decay mechanic. Um, so let's talk a little bit. How, how did it end up in, in Midnight Hunt? Yeah, so it was really interesting. We were actually um, designing and developing um, Midnight Hunt and Crimson Vow almost in parallel. Midnight Hunt, of course, was like a little bit earlier in the process, but um, the sets were being worked on at the same time. And there were actually a couple instances where we kind of moved mechanics back and forth between the two sets, um, just depending on what made the most sense in terms of the set structure. And Decayed is one of the ones that we inherited from Crimson Vow um, and swapped over to Midnight Hunt. Um, a similar thing actually also happened with... Um, the spirit mechanic, and I won't spoil too much about what's coming in Crimson Vow, but there was a little bit of a um, trading back and forth in terms of what the spirits were doing exactly between those two sets. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Decade, because it, it, it's something that I, I was very proud of my team when we made it, but it's a really weird thing. So let's talk a little bit about m making Decade cards. Yeah, so what's interesting about Decade is the, the keyword Decade is actually downside. So you, you can ask, well, what's cool about having downside? Like, why have a downside mechanic on things? And the answer is that by putting Decade on these tokens, we get to give you more of them, and we get to give you them at less of a cost in terms of, you know, the mana that we're charging you on cards and card advantage and things like that. And um, what makes it work really well is that we really want to capture that flavor of like the zombie horde, right? There's just so many zombies and they're bearing down on you and they have that sense of dread and inevitability. And by putting decayed on the tokens, we let to, we get to give you lots of them. Cause one of the things that can be a struggle with tokens is that they really gum up the board, you know, normal, just a normal one, one token that is allowed to block can gum up the board and make combat difficult and mathy and things like that. But by putting decayed on the tokens, the fact that they can't block means that they're not just sitting around, you know, stopping your opponent from attacking you. And the fact that they go away after they attack means, you know, you get to get your one big attack in, but the, then the game progresses. And it's not all about those tokens kind of gumming up the board and slowing things down. Yeah, one of the things I think is really fun about them is, 
on some level, they are a creature. In many ways, they are a creature. And there's things that care about creatures that care about them. But in some ways, they're not a creature in that they don't have the full utility of a creature. That they're kind of this halfway in between a creature and not a creature, which is really interesting when you're trying to understand how they work. Yeah, that's very true. And one of the things that we tried to do with the set is give you additional ways for them to matter. Um, you know, if, if all that the decayed zombies could do was just sit there, not block, and then attack at one point in the game and then go away, that's maybe not super interesting because they're kind of always playing out the same way. Um, and in particular, we wanted to make sure that the zombies deck didn't always play out in the way where you built up a bunch of zombies and then did one big attack to end the game. We didn't want every single game to end that way and for that to be the only way that that deck could play. So we gave you a bunch of other uh, ways to use decayed zombies. Um, there's a couple creatures that let you tap multiple creatures that you control on the battlefield to get an effect um, so that you can kind of decide to keep your decayed zombies around uh, for, for some time to get some value out of them before you make that attack. Um, well, I guess one example of that would be Larder Zombie. It's a blue mana for a 1-3 defender, and you can tap three untapped creatures you control to look at the top card of your library, and if you want to, you can put it into your graveyard. So as you're building up your horde of zombies and kind of controlling the game, this will give you a little bit of card manip manipulation and make sure you have the right answers to your opponent's threats, that kind of thing. Um, the other thing that's neat about Decayed Zombies is they die a lot. And uh, since it's Innistrad, we have a lot of cards that care about creatures dying. So these give you a nice way to kind of get on-demand creature death happening um, and trigger various abilities. And in fact, um, the black-green limited archetype is kind of caring about creatures dying um, with some cards that either get bonuses or have mana discounts, depending on how many creatures have died this turn. So that obviously plays really well with Decayed Zombies as well. Yeah, the one other thing that's really interesting is the first time you ever have a 2-2 two, two up, and, and your opponent attacks with a 2-2 two, two decayed zombie, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, am I supposed to block? It's, it's a very... I love when we give you sort of different problems to, that you've never thought about before, and you're like, okay, like, normally I'll trade a 2-2 two, two for a 2-2 two, because two, I, I get the body, but, like, it's going to die, so, like, wh what does that mean? I, that's really interesting to me. Right, and things get even more interesting when there's, like, bluff-type situations that come up. So, say I have the 2-2 two, two Decayed Zombie and you have a 2-3 creature, and I attack you with my zombie. What are you going to do now? Are you going to block? Well, then I might get to trade a combat trick for your creature, um, or it might have some kind of other bonus or pump spell or surprise. Um, but for my end of things, the opportunity cost is very low, because I have this very disposable token that's going to go away after it attacks anyway. So maybe I'm just bluffing entirely, and you should just go ahead and block. So there's a lot of interesting situations like that that come up. Okay, I'm going to transition to a next mechanic, uh, using something you said about Decade. Um, you talked about how you could tap them. So I want to talk a little bit about the early states of Coven and how we ended up with how where we got to. So when the set turned over, we had, a, I think it was called Witchcraft was the name of the ability. Um, and it was like a kicker-like ability where you had to tap three creatures to kick it, basically. Yeah, that's in, in my earliest memory of seeing the vision handoff. I do remember that that witchcraft um, uh, mechanic there. That's something that I think was worked on during Eric Lauer's portion of leading set design. So I don't know much about what all was tried with that other than seeing a few of the um, individual cards there. But there was actually another intermediate step in between that original witchcraft and where we ended up with Coven. And that was a mechanic that we called hunting at the time. Um, and this was another variant on So basically, 
all, all of these mechanics along the way, we were trying to capture the flavor of the humans working together against all the creatures of the night, the werewolves, the zombies, the vampires, and so on. And so we wanted to have a mechanic that conveyed, you know, collaboration between a bunch of creatures. So witchcraft was the first iteration of that, where you tapped creatures to get a bonus when you cast a spell or did some other action. Uh, then we tried out hunting, which was sort of like convoke. It was a mana discount on spells that discounted a mana for each creature that you attacked with this turn. And we tried that out for a bit. Um, one of the issues we found when we had lots of cards that did that is the games were pretty snowball-y in that either you got off to a great start and you were able to keep attacking your opponent with your creatures and then keep playing your, your cards for a mana discount, or things would be not going so well for you and your opponent would put up an early defense and then you wouldn't be able to attack nor would you be able to cast your spells because you weren't able to get the mana discount on them. So we found that that mechanic was cool on a small number of cards, but didn't play as well on a large number of cards, you know, blown out as a major mechanic, um, at least given the way the rest of the set structure was. However, there is one card in the final set that preserves that functionality, which is called Search Party Captain. This is a three and a white for a 2-2 creature, and it costs one less to cast for each creature you attacked with this turn. And when it enters the battlefield, you draw a card. So that's kind of the one holdover from that intermediate step of hunting. And then after we decided hunting wasn't right, that's when we explored um, yet another mechanic there. And basically, I just did a call out for my team to submit a bunch of different mechanic um, candidates that would, again, convey this flavor of, of creatures working together. And the one that we liked the best was Coven, where you're trying to play this mini game of getting different creatures with different power stats onto the battlefield. And we thought that was a really cool thing, both flavorfully and mechanically, and it ended up working out really well. So, yeah, one of the things that, that, that I like about Coven that, that uh, as a, a, a game designer I always appreciate is I love caring about something that's already in the game, but we haven't really cared about before. That, that, that always is joyful for me when we find that stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's also rewarding you for something that you want to do anyway, right? It's in the colors green and white, which are the most creature-based colors. So you naturally just want to have a lot of creatures on the battlefield. And, you know, when you do, then your coven turns on and things power up. Yeah, and one of the cool things, I know um, uh, in the uh, commander decks, they even have ones that are they don't, they don't stop at three, right? They just care about how many different powers you have. I think that's great, too. Yeah, and that was actually something we collaborated with uh, the commander team about. That was one of their suggestions is like, hey, this coven mechanic is pretty cool. We think in the context of commander where the games go a little bit longer, a little bit bigger than they might in one-on-one -on -one competitive play, uh, it would be really cool if there were like some coven cards that continued to scale up as you had more and more and more different powers in play. Um, so really glad that that team added some cards like that. Very cool. Yeah, one of the fun things is that commander can, can really riff off of ideas in the set, but then push more in commander directions. That's kind of fun. Okay, so we've talked werewolves. We've talked zombies. We've talked humans. So let's talk spirits. So um, the disturb mechanic. What can you tell me about the disturb mechanic? Yeah, so disturb is um, just keying into something people know and love from previous Innistrad sets, which is getting cards into your graveyard, you know, via self-mill or looting. Um Traditionally, spirits have also been about flying creatures, so kind of tying all those things together. We have creatures that are um, humans or other non-spirit uh, creatures on the front, and then they can come back from the graveyard via the disturb mechanic as flying spirits. And I think there's a lot of great opportunities for telling really cool and flavorful stories um, with these cards. 
Um, and they also just play really well in the context of the rest of the set mechanics in terms of filling up your graveyard. One of my favorites is the Beloved Beggar. This is um, one in a white for a 0-4 creature, and it has Disturb for four white-white, and it comes back as a 4-4 Flying Vigilance, so almost like a, a Sarah Angel, if you will. And I just like this card because the, the story and the flavor on it is great, you know, just seeing the Beloved Beggar from town, and then he's coming back as the Generous Soul uh, and kind of protecting the village. Uh, and also mechanically, it's just really neat that you can play this early creature to defend yourself early in the game and hold off some early attackers. And then it also can serve as a win condition later on. So the whole package there really came together for me. So I want to address something. Uh, one of the comments I, I get about Disturb, and just talk, I want to talk about this in general. Um, I know some people are uh, like get concerned that like Disturb costs are too high. We get this on Flashback as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit about about sort of late game utility and and like. I think people, uh, I'm sort of curious to get your feedback on why you think people sort of look at these big costs, but yet they're, they're very playable cards. Yeah, that's a that's a great question for me, Mark, because historically I've been like very much a game balance type of designer. So I think a lot about power level and, and costing of cards. And I have noticed that, yeah, it's very easy to underappreciate things like Disturb and things like Flashback. And I think a big part of that is it's not necessarily obvious, but those mechanics are almost like drawing a card, right? So when you play a flashback spell, you are almost, in addition to whatever effect you're getting, you're also getting another card, which is that same spell in your graveyard now. So we have to charge you that additional amount as though, you know, we've basically stapled draw a card to that effect. Uh, and similar with, uh, with the spirits as well. So like the beloved beggar that I just described, sure, it's, it's two mana for a zero four creature, which would be lousy by itself. But when it dies, it's almost as if you're drawing that six mana four four flying vigilance. And so that's kind of baked into how we're charging you um, for the card, either upfront on the original cost or on the backside of the disturbed cost or the flashback cost. And I think just, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of a subtle thing that it takes some experience playing the game to appreciate or some some thought to kind of sit down and evaluate the cards. But I think players will find that when they actually play with the set that these effects are more powerful than they re might read at first glance. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing from just doing, you know, doing a lot of magic design is there's certain things that players always over overestimate and things they always underestimate. Um, and late game utility, just like, this card does something, and then for free, kind of, later on, you get to, you know, like, the the idea that I have this, right, six mana, four, four, flying creature, you know, like, late in the game, when you have nothing else to do with your mana, like, wouldn't you like a four, four? Like, it's, you know. Right, and it's something that we have a lot of play um, in terms of, in terms of as game designers, how we, we cost and position these cards. So, I guess, for example... Um, you know, we, we get to choose, do we want to give you, so say we have a flashback card. We as designers get to choose, do we want to cost the that card upfront as close as possible to what it would cost if it didn't have flashback? Or we can charge you a little bit extra, but give you like a more efficient flashback on it. So for example, take the card Lightning Strike. It's one, one in a red for three damage to any target at instant speed. Now we could make a card that was Lightning Strike, but it also had flashback for 10 mana. And people would read that card and be like, wow, why is the flashback so high on this card, right? But secretly, it's because Lightning Strike is a pretty powerful card just by itself, right? Like, you would just play that card in a lot of decks, you know, especially in Limited or in Standard. And so we we get to choose, you know, do we, we want to make that card where we're giving you the efficient version up front with the very inefficient flashback cost? 
Or we could take that same card, we could charge you three mana up front for it, and then maybe make the flashback six or seven mana, right? So we get to play around with kind of sloshing that power back and forth between what you get up front versus what you get later. Okay, well, since we got, you, we, we've, you've, you've transitioned to, uh, to flashback, so um, what did flashback do differently? What, 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 like, flashback, obviously, we've done it many times. It was in original Innistrad, it, it was originally in Odyssey. Um, so what, what did we do with flashback this time around? So this time around, the biggest thing with flashback is that we have um, the first ever multicolor flashback cards. Um, flashback is, like you said, a mechanic we've done several times in the past, and it always plays really well and ends up being popular. So it's it's one of our go-tos that we will probably return to again at some point in the future. Um, so who can say when? Um, but yeah, we just really love how flashback plays and, and um, playing into graveyard mechanics and looting and self-mill and things like that. Um, and this time around, we thought we would give players um, the first ever multicolor flashback cards. So we've got, uh, for example, a cycle of uncommons in each of the 10 color pairs, um, many of which are, are pretty exciting cards. And uh, yeah, we've mostly had a lot of, a lot of fun play testing with them. It also gives this set a little bit more of a multicolor feel than the previous Innistrad sets, which helps spice things up a little bit compared to what we've seen before. So do you know where the multicolor came from? A little behind the scenes here? I don't know for sure. Um, I certainly remember, you know, working with Eric on the idea and some of the designs, but I, I don't remember who initially came up with the pitch to have multicolor flashback. So originally, uh, Strixhaven also had flashback. And we had done multicolor on that because it had an enemy theme, right? And I realized in Strixhaven, oh, we've never done we've never done multicolor flashback. Oh, okay, because flashback made a lot of sense in the spell matter set. And I'm like, okay, we'll do enemy we'll do enemy colored flashback. We've never done gold flashback. And then when we decided not to do it in Strixhaven and just do an Innistrad, Eric was like, oh, multicolor, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm glad because it worked out well. Um, I do remember when I joined the team under Eric's leadership, um, we actually had common multicolor flashback cards in the set that we played with for a few playtests. And ultimately, we felt that um, that made the set feel like a little bit too multicolor compared to what we were going for. And in particular, in the draft, since there's only typically eight drafters in a draft pod, yet there's 10 color pairs, you would always end up with a few of the color pairs not being represented among the drafters, and then you'd have these relatively powerful multicolor flashback cards just going around and around the table and no one was picking them up, and that just kind of felt wrong because we wanted to make sure that as multicolor cards, they were you know pretty powerful, at least in limited, and felt rewarding for you to draft them, but then whichever color pairs people weren't drafting, you'd just see these powerful cards floating around and no one was picking them up, and that, that didn't end up working out all that well. So we decided to move them up to higher rarities, and I think things played a lot better since then. Yeah, it's hard to do common gold cards without something to help you have access to them. So, like normally, a gold set will have you know common mana fixing and stuff. Which absolutely, yeah. and ultimately, we decided we didn't want the set to have that much multicolor feel because we've done you know we've done other sets where you know, the shtick of the set is that it's a multicolor set, you know, like Strixhaven and so on, uh, various Ravnica sets in the past and all that. Um, and that's not quite what we were going for here. Okay, so we've talked about almost all the mechanics. There's a lot of mechanics in the set, a lot of named mechanics. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Investigate. So uh, I know in Vision Design, I think we turned over two. I think there were two in the Vision Design handoff, and I think there was five in the finished set. So talk a little bit about, like, what, did you guys ever think of removing Investigate? Absolutely, we did. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is it may not be obvious at, at first blush, but... 
flashback and investigate are really similar mechanics in terms of what they do for a limited environment, in terms of giving the players more to do in the late game and more card flow. So we also have a lot of flashback in the set um, compared to previous times we've done flashbacks. So the feeling at one point was that there wasn't room to have investigate on top of flashback, that that would just be too much card flow. People would never run out of things to do with their mana uh, and the games would drag on forever. So that was something that we were really careful of. And I know that Eric encouraged me to be careful of as well. That being said, um, just me as a magic player and magic fan, I really love the mechanic investigate. And I think it was really popular when we previously did it in shadows over Innistrad block. So I, I knew that players would expect to have some amount of investigate back. So the little trick that I pulled was I put investigate on a smaller number of cards and many of them are, are uncommon or higher rarity, but I made sure that those cards are pretty prominent and powerful cards that will maybe show up and constructed a bit. So it kind of feels like there's more investigate in the set when you're thinking about iconic and powerful cards from the set, but there's not actually that high of a density of it in the limited environment because flashback is taking up that space. Okay, so we've we've talked through all the named mechanics. So, is there anything? What else about the set? What 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 are you proud of as far as just from a a set design perspective? Well, one of the things that we identified early on is that um, the set had um, a relatively low number of legends uh, around the time of the handoff and, uh, that I got from Eric. And so I was encouraged by um, some of our other designers and product architects to explore ways to add some more legends to the set. Um, so we did end up adding a bunch of them throughout the process. And some of the ones that um, uh, that I'm, I'm really proud of uh, that we ended up with, there's 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 uh, Lear, uh, Disciple of the Drowned, um, who kind of gives all of your, your spells flashback in your graveyard, um, which was at one point a non-legendary creature. We'd put it into the file and called it Snapcaster Master after <laughs> the old Snapcaster Mage as a reference to that. But we decided that it would make a really cool legend um, since it's an ex exciting ability that doesn't stack anyway. Um, other legends that I uh, certainly spent a lot of time on Tovalar, and I'm really excited to see that, you know, the community is pretty excited about that card. Um, we knew that players would really expect to have a werewolf legend that would be an awesome commander for werewolf decks, something that we hadn't necessarily delivered on very well in the past. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that card and coming up with um, various different versions of that. From the get-go, one of the things that I wanted to accomplish with that card was kind of unifying how the all the werewolves worked. So at this point, we now have at least these three different types of um, transformation conditions for werewolves. There's the original Innistrad werewolves with the original expression of day and night. Then there's the Eldrazi werewolves from uh, Eldritch Moon. And then now we have the daybound, nightbound werewolves from Innistrad Midnight Hunt. And I wanted to make sure that you could put all of those cards in the same deck and not have it be an absolute tracking nightmare with all of them transforming under different conditions and not necessarily being synced up with them. So we tried a bunch of different versions of Tovalar. One of the early ones, I think... Um, basically gave all of your, your werewolves daybound and nightbound and enforced that they transformed with him um, in both ways. But we eventually found a, a cleaner version of that that was a little bit more intuitive. And I think we ended up in a pretty pretty fun spot with that card. Yeah, I know, definitely. I, I've got a lot of very positive responses from the werewolf fans uh, on Tovalar. And then beyond that, we just wanted to make sure we had a lot of um, just recognizable and fun inclusions in the set um, that people would associate with, you know, spookiness or Halloween or um, those types of, of flavor. So making sure we had a jack-o'-lantern in the set was something that the team talked a lot about and we really liked. Um, other top-downs like the silver bolt that kills werewolves we thought was pretty cool. And there's the... Uh, 
the stuffed bear, you know, kind of the, the spooky taxidermied uh, bear that comes to life is another really fun top down uh, that made it all the way through the process. So I think having a lot of cards like that really capturing just the flavor and the theme of what people love about horror and what they've loved about previous Innistrads is definitely something that the team spent a lot of time thinking about. Okay, so there's one card I want to talk about just because it's a very uh, set designy thing. So Delver of Secrets, which was obviously a very powerful card from original Innistrad. Tell me the story of how this actually got in the set and stayed in the set. Yeah, so this card was in the set uh, when I joined the team. So somebody at some point thought, let's try out Delver of Secrets. It might have been Eric. Um, I don't know for sure. I would probably guess it was Eric. Um, and the idea behind Delver of Secrets is it's it's a very powerful card in the greater scope of magic history um, in that it's, you know, it's powerful in non-rotating formats like Legacy, where there's lots of cheap spells to play with it and lots of card manipulation. And it was certainly very powerful in the original Innistrad standard when it came out. Although it's a very context-dependent card, right? In the original uh, Innistrad, it had other cards to work with it, like Snapcaster Mage, Vapor Snag, Gataxian Probe, Mana Leak, um, just very powerful blue instants and sorceries and card manipulation. And so while it was really, really powerful in that environment, um, we thought that we could maybe bring it back in a new environment where it was still very powerful, but not too powerful to bring back in standard. So we decided to give it a try, um, and we put it in the file, knowing that when we eventually got to the, the FFL process, the Future Future League process, where the play designers test the cards in standard, that we might find out that it's too powerful and have to reject it and go with something else instead. But everybody seemed really excited about it all along the way. And again, we knew as long as we were careful about what other instance and sorceries and other card manipulation effects we included in the environment that we could kind of tweak and tune the context around the card and hopefully get the card to be in a good spot for standard. And ultimately we think we were able to do that. Um, and yeah, people, people seemed really excited to give the card another try and I'm happy that it made it through the process. Yeah. It, it's very funny because there's a lot of cards, like we, we, we try cards all the time. It's uh, we always will put reprints in and try them. And, a lot of times we're bold and we try things and then they get knocked out and they don't make it all the way. Um, and so it's fun to like more times than not, they don't make it. So it's fun when they do make it. Yep. And certainly I've been on sets where we've tried cards that didn't make it all the way through. And in fact, I'm working on sets right now where we're trying some ambitious reprints that we still aren't sure whether they will or won't make it through. Um, so it's something that we're definitely willing to experiment with in the future. And we know that there's a certain section of our players that love when iconic and powerful reprints come back. So we try to do them um, when we can, you know, as long as we pace them out judiciously and make sure that we're being responsible as far as game balance goes and so on. Yeah, it just, I think it's funny, because to the audience perspective, like, to my perspective, it's like, we try all the time, so when one makes it, I'm so excited when it makes it through. Yep, for sure. So, well, anyway, I, I can see my desk here, so I'm not too far from work. Uh, do you have any any final thoughts on uh, Innistrad Midnight Hunt? No, just that I'm, I'm really excited to see everyone's reaction to the set. At the, at the time of recording this, um, the set just came out on Arena yesterday. So I spent a lot of time watching uh, people stream, drafting, and uh, the new standard environment. And I've been following social media. And it, so far, it seems like there's a lot of positivity and excitement around the set. And that makes me really excited, too. Um, you know, both as the set lead and just as a Magic fan and player myself. So I'm really, really curious, as always, to see, like, how the limited environment plays out and what people think of it. Um, and then of course, you know, how the new standard environment rolls out with, uh, the rotation just having happened as well. So there'll be lots of new exciting stuff there. 
And then, you know, some of the, some of the mechanics in the set too. I really want to see how people end up evaluating them uh, once they get to play with the cards. Um, Disturb and certainly Daybound and Nightbound and the Day Night Tracker are the the foremost in my mind. Um, like I said earlier, we kind of knew we were spending a lot of our complexity points equity on that mechanic, and I'm really excited to see. You know, hopefully it turns out fun and people enjoy it, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Well, I want to thank you for joining me, uh, Ian. It's fun. I. It's always fun talking magic sets, but it's fun also talk like re- just coming out magic sets. That's a, a, extra fun. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a pleasure to be here, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Well, so everybody else, uh, I want to thank uh, Ian for joining us, and I will talk to all of you next time. Uh, so uh, instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. I'll see you guys next time. Bye bye. <laughs>